Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney, we're at it again, navigating another aspect of systemic racism in America. This week, we're going into territory our listeners probably haven't thought about, farmers, farming, and land theft. Now, I recall you're a big fan of the movie Gone with the Wind. Now, isn't there a memorable quote in that movie about land? Oh, yes. Gone with the Wind. Everyone's entitled to a problematic fave, and Scarlett O'Hara is mine. But the quote you're referring to is from her father, Gerald O'Hara. What he said to his daughter pretty much is, it's the land, Scarlett. That's the only thing that matters because land is the only thing that lasts. Now, in the agrarian South, land ownership was the ladder up to respect, prosperity, and the means to building economic security. So true. And at one time, 15% of farmers in the United States were Black African-Americans. Today, that number has shrunken to less than 2%. And that decline and loss of millions of acres of land is due largely to racism, financial discrimination, and violence. A combination of obstacles that started with slavery and continues to dog business owners to this day. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about how all that land was lost and what we can do today to help Black African-American farmers. In 2001, the Associated Press did an investigation where they interviewed more than 1,000 people, examined tens of thousands of public records in county court offices and state and federal archives. That investigation documented 107 land thefts in 13 southern states. And among those cases alone, 406 Black landowners lost more than 24,000 acres of land and timberland, plus 85 smaller properties, including stores and city lots. Today, virtually all of this property, valued at tens of millions of dollars, is now owned by whites or corporations. Properties taken from Blacks were often small, a, 40, a small 40-acre farm, a general store, a modest house, but the losses were devastating to families struggling to overcome the legacy of slavery. Besides the 107 cases the AP documented, reporters found evidence of scores of other land theft that could not be fully verified because of gaps or inconsistencies in public record. 
thousands of additional reports of land takings from Black families remain uninvestigated. And in fact, many of those relate to some of the massacres that have occurred around the country where Blacks were literally just run off their land because they were Black. 2,000 of those reports have been collected in recent years by the Penn Center on St. Helena Island, which is down the street from my mother-in-law's house. Now, the Penn Center is an educational institution established for freed slaves during the Civil War. Now, not only is work being done by the Penn Center, Ray Winbush, director of Fisk University's Institute of Race Relations, says that the AP's findings are just the tip of one of the biggest crimes in this country's history. Well, let's look at this crime then and see the methods for land theft from the past. Now, one of the biggest was murder, usually through lynchings. Racial violence in America is a well-told story, but the importance of land as a motive for lynchings has gone largely overlooked. Historians say prosperous Black African Americans and Black landowners often became targets of white lynch mobs whose attacks could trigger an exodus of Blacks. The Equal Justice Initiative reports more than 4,400 racial terror lynchings in the United States during the period between Reconstruction and World War II. Terrorism was another method used to appropriate land. In the Jim Crow era, when Black Americans could not drink from the same water fountains as whites and Black men were lynched for whistling at white women, few Blacks dared to challenge whites who took their land illegally. Those who did rarely found lawyers who would take their cases or judges who would give them a fair hearing. Well, I'm guessing, Courtney, after hearing this information, you have a story about Black African-Americans that will bring this situation into real focus for us. Oh, I will. Now, I need to give a trigger warning to all of our young historians and those who are bothered by acts of violence, as well as maiming, dismembering, and suicide. So if any of those things trigger you, um, just you may want to turn the story down at certain parts or just be advised if you have young historians with you, it's a little bit of a violent story. Oh boy, here we go. All righty. Now, Aunt Carol, no one, no one thinks any less of someone who would protect their family, home, and pro- and property against intruders intending to harm them. Not at all. The mere concept of strangers coming into your home in the middle of the night with orders for you to vacate or else is the stuff of nightmares. But that's exactly what happened to Mr. George Denning one cold night in Kentucky. And the story will end with how, with the help of an unlikely ally, he tried to seek justice. Well, I'm intrigued. What happened? Now, late in the night on January 21st, 1897, a group of 25 armed white men showed up at the home of George and Mary Denning. They told the family, you have 10 days to leave or else. Now, George asked, well, what did I do? What do you want? They began to accusing the form of accusing the former slave of stealing 
chickens, hogs, and turkeys from the land, all which belonged to Mr. Denning. Now, George insisted that he was no thief, but these night riders were not listening. They shot into the couple's home where their terrified, their 12 terrified children huddled in a corner. And Mr. Denning was hit in the arm and grazed by a bullet in the forehead. Now, despite his wounds, George returned fire. Now, he killed a 32-year-old man by the name of Jody Kahn. Now, after the whites fled, George made his way to nearby Franklin, Franklin, the county seat of Simpson, Kentucky. Now, at that point, he turned himself in to the sheriff. Now, that was a brave move. But anyway, what happened now? Well, back at the house, afraid that the vigilantes would return, George's wife, Mary, bundled up the children and huddled them off to leave. Now, they were right. Just as the family was leaving, the mob returned. They plundered the family's possessions and burned the house to the ground. Wow. Now, initial reports in the newspaper were cruel to George Denning. The Courier Journey of Louisville published a dispatch on January 23rd that described George as a worthless and dangerous Negro, while Khan, the actual intruder who was shot, they said that he was a quiet, inoffensive man, and he was a member of one of the oldest and wealthiest families in the state. Sounds like money talks. Uh, the money talks indeed. Now, George knew as well as the sheriff that he would be lynched if he stayed in town. So the quick thinking sheriff put George in a car and sent him off to Bowling Green, Kentucky, then to Louisville. And that's about 145 miles north of the city of Franklin. Now, five months later, George was put on trial for the murder of Mr. Khan. Tensions were high and the governor was afraid of violence. So the governor of Kentucky, a Republican by the name of William O. Bradley, ordered the state militia to guard the jail where George was incarcerated. Things were really tense by now. Very tense. And even though the state militia was guarding the jail, locals of Franklin shot at them. Hmm. Now, based on the testimony of the whites who had been a part of the vigilante band that was trying to terrorize the Denning family, George was almost immediately convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to seven years of hard labor for defending his home. That doesn't make any sense, but again, it's the injustice of justice. Now, the story sparked national outrage, especially in the North, which saw the attack on George's family as a broader effort by whites in the South to rid themselves of Black, African-American, newly freed slaves through intimidation and terror. Now, on July 17th, 1897, only after only spending two weeks in prison, Governor Bradley, the state's first Republican governor, pardoned George of his crimes. That's he, an interesting switch of events. A very interesting 
switch. Now, Governor Bradley was very outspoken against racial violence. That very year, he called a special session to push through an anti-lynching law. So not only did he pardon George, he put into effect an actual anti-lynching law in 1897. Unheard of. Unheard of. Wow. He was ahead of his time. Very much so. And in a part of the pardon, he was quoted as saying, George defended himself as every with every dictate within reason. He protected himself and his family. He did what any other man would do under any other circumstances. Okay, that's reasonable. Now, upon George's release, he was reunited with his family in Jeffersonville, Indiana. Now, if you know anything about Jeffersonville, it's right across the river from Kentucky. And George immediately began speaking out about the injustice that he had endured. He even told the local newspapers that he intended to file a damaged lawsuit against the men who burned his house down. Now, talk like that in those days was intolerable by many Southern whites. So on September 22nd, 1897, George Denning was attacked by three white men who gouged out his right eye and beat him severely in the skull, breaking bones. Oh, my goodness. This is vicious. But George would not be stopped. He stuck to his guns and promised he would sue the white men who drove him from his home. And in an unlikely turn of events, he hired one of Kentucky's most prominent lawyers, Bennett H. Young, who was none other than a hero of the Confederate Army. Now, this really is a twist and turn of a story. So I am on the edge of my seat to hear the rest of this. So let's take a break. Let's take a breather. And when we come back, we'll hear how this trial turns out. Okay, we're back. But before you finish, and I really want to hear the end of this, I want to remind our listeners if they need and want to take a deeper dive into understanding systemic races in America, they can go to our website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com for more information and take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. And if you like our podcast, please subscribe, leave a comment, and consider giving us five stars. All righty, I'm ready, and I hope our listeners are ready to find out what happens next in this exciting story. Well, buckle your seatbelts. Now, when we left, George had hired a Confederate hero by the name of Bennett H. Young as his attorney. Now, Mr. Young knew that this was a straightforward case legally. Witnesses who testified at the criminal trial against George immediately implicated themselves in their participation on the stand at the civil trial. Now, Mr. Young also knew that George would have to overcome the deeply ingrained racism at the time. Now, never one to shy away from a fight, Young rose to the occasion 
by giving a speech which the St. Louis Post-Dispatch characterized as one rarely equaled for passion and earnestness. Young denounced the White Caps and the Ku Klux Klan who drove Denning from his home. Now, on May 5th, 1899, a jury of 12 white men returned a verdict of $50,000 in George Denning's favor. That's a lot of money back then. It is. It equals out to about $1.4 million today. Now, those who would be responsible for paying George would be the six members of the mob that attacked his home and the estate of Jody Khan, the man that he killed. Hmm. Now, the, that type of verdict at that time was unheard of. Now, W.S. Moore, who was one of the defendants who led the raid on George George's home, was so distraught and so unsettled by the verdict that he would have to pay this black man back. He committed suicide. Wow. This definitely this is a turn of events. So we have a suicide. We have an eye gouging, a huge verdict a house burning, and a former slave and a Confederate general hero teaming up for racial justice. Amazing. Now, sadly, George never collected the 50000 He only got about $500 three years after the verdict. And that's what the newspapers quoted in 1902, which would equal out to about $1,800 today. So even though he won his case and got justice, the Dennings still lost their home. They never, never were able to return. And their land was folded into the holdings of their white neighbors who took control by simply paying the taxes on the land. And that land still continues to be broken up today in smaller lots. Well, What you described is beyond unfair, Courtney, but it was not unusual to have this kind of violence and land theft regularly done to Black African Americans, especially those in the rural communities. Fortunately, this kind of horrifying violence is not being done, but there is a different type of violence that's being perpetuated throughout the South, and it's almost as bad as this vicious physical violence. Yes, Aunt Carol. I understand there is a way for lawyers and real estate traders to strip Americans of their ancestral land simply by following the law. Indeed they can, my dear niece. They are doing it through a legal maneuvering called partitioning. Now, this is a court procedure that originally it was started with all good intentions. It was it was to help resolve land disputes, but it is being used to pry land from people who do not want to sell. Now, here's how it works. Whenever a landowner dies without a will, the heirs, usually a spouse and children, they inherit the estate. So they get the land. Now, they own the land in common with no one person owning a specific part of it. Now, if one or more family members die without wills, things can get really messy within a couple of generations with dozens of relatives owning the land in common. Now, anyone 
can buy an interest in one of these family estates. So all it takes is a single heir to sell. And anyone who owns a share, no matter how small, can go to a judge and request that the entire property be sold at auction. Now, some landowners seek out these types of estates on purpose. In fact, a lot of them do. And they buy small shares of the land with the intention of forcing auctions. And when they force those auctions, family members seldom have enough money to compete, even when the high bid is less than the market value of the land. Wow. Mm -hmm. Now, isn't it true that 5.5 million acres of farmland was once owned, half of which was once owned by Black African-Americans, was lost through these types of partition sales? That's right. Your facts are correct. 5.5 million acres of farmland that Black African-Americans once owned, half of that land was taken through these partition sales. Now, in the state of South Carolina, there is some relief in sight for these air property owners. Now, it might signal a trend for the rest of the South, and I hope that it does. In 2016, the South Carolina legislature passed the Clementa C. Pinckney Uniform Partition Heirs Property Act, and that's a long, long title, but it's named in honor of the state lawmaker among the eight who had been murdered in an act of racial terror at Charleston's Emanuel AME Church in 2015. The law allows co-tenants to buy out the shares of land from speculators, making it difficult for land to be sold through the courts. And it allows judges to consider factors such as the sentimental and ancestral um, history of the land before it can be sold. That is great to hear. Before we recorded this a podcast, I talked to my husband, who our listeners know is from South Carolina. That's where his family is from. And his family members gave me a lot of real life insight on how this law is helping people. I'm glad to hear that. Now, Aunt Carol, I've read that there are other ways farmland has been stolen from Black African-American farmers, and it involves a department of the federal government? Well, again, my dear niece, you have done your homework. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has a long history of discriminating against Black African-American farmers. Sometimes they did it overtly forcing people off their land, subjecting them to hostility and contempt in federal offices, and conspiring with banks and land developers to steal their property. They had other underhanded hidden ways to do it as well. Uh, For example, they routinely denied Black African-American farmers the same loans white farmers obtained with ease. The USDA and Federal farm policy are largely responsible for driving Black people out of farming almost entirely. Black African-American farmers lost about 90% of the land they owned between 1910 and 1997, while white farmers lost only about 2% of land over the same period. Now, between 1999 and 2009, the Government Accountability Office, or the GAO, released 
at least 10 official documents that describe the USDA's continued problems in addressing discrimination complaints and reporting discrimination statistics. Now, several USDA employees have said managers ordered the destruction of civil rights files and disregarded complaints. Very hard to believe and sad that the government agency that should be protecting these farmers really did not and does not. In one striking case, documented by historian Pete Daniel, a Black farmer in South Carolina named Charles McDonald was repeatedly denied loans because the USDA agents listed his crop yields as far lower than they actually were, a practice USDA agents have used for decades to deny loans to Black farmers. Since USDA determined McDonald was not quote, a productive farmer, even though he had won multiple awards for his corn production, it repeatedly denied him loans, which caused him to lose over 700 acres, including land that was owned by his family for over 100 years. Wow. The USDA published its own report in 1998 that said the most disturbing are the is the indifference and blatant discrimination experienced by minority farmers in their interactions with USDA programs and staff. Discrimination has been a contributing factor in the dramatic decline of Black farmers over the last several decades. Yep, in their own words. But clearly, the department hasn't changed since that report in 1998, because in 2016, the USDA shows that 86% of all microloans issued between 2013 and 2015 went to white farmers, and at least two-thirds went to white men. That year, only 7% of the microloans went to Black African-American farmers. Overall, Black African-American farmers only receive zero, point, I'm sorry, 0.02% of all money granted by the USDA. That's not fair at all. So let's talk about some ways that our listeners can support the dwindling number of Black African-American farmers. We can do that. And we'll look at an article that Ruben Castaneda wrote called Five Ways to Help Black Farmers. And these are all great. First of all, he suggests buy from black farmers. Now to find them selling fruits and vegetables in your areas, just go to the farmers markets in your community and search for the black farmers on social media. For example, there's a number of groups for black farmers on Facebook. And in addition to buying from black farmers at markets, at farmer markets, you can arrange subscriptions for ongoing buys on a regularly scheduled basis. Another thing you can do is use your social media platform to spread the words about black farmers. Don't just tell friends and family about the great produce that you found from a black vendor at your farmer's market. Circulate the word on social media, post photos, hashtags, go live on Facebook and Instagram about the delicious vegetables you purchased from a black farmer. Use that platform. 
platform is always good. Also, talk to those farmers and ask how you can help them. Sometimes you may have a particular skill that they need. For example, if you are someone who can help them develop a website or even their own social media presence, offer ser services pro bono that they might need. Donate to nonprofit organizations that help Black farmers. For example, Farms. It's a legal nonprofit based, is legal nonprofit and based in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Now, Farms provides legal and technical services to Black farmers. Black farmers nationwide lose 30,000 acres of land, primarily because of the discrimination we described in the episode today. Lack of estate planning, eminent domain, and tax liens are the cause of this. Now, many Black farmers die without a will, leaving the land open to the partitioning that we described uh, with the heirs land situation earlier. Another thing you can do is if you have unused land, consider donating it to a farmer. Many farmers say they could grow and sell much more produce if they just had more land. And if you have unused land, either in a city or a suburb or even a rural area, consider donating it so a Black African farmer can grow more and sell more. That's a great idea. And you can also keep your neighborhood from being a food drought area by letting these farmers come in and grow fresh produce. It looks like that's all we have for today's episode. So if you miss us between now and the next episode, visit us on Instagram at Why Are They So Angry? Send us a like on Facebook at Why Are They So Angry? Tweet us at W-A-T-S-A underscore online on Twitter. And of course, come to the website, whyaretheysoangry.com and take the course, Systemic Racism. See it, say it, confront it. And the next time we get together, we'll continue talking about land theft. Courtney, did you know that a substantial amount of beachfront property at one time was owned by Black African-Americans? I did not know that. So I am looking forward to finding another thrilling story to go with that topic. Can't wait. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.